Good morning, everybody. Good to greet you. I want to welcome all you folks joining us online this morning. I need everybody to grab a Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and the sixth chapter. The Gospel of Luke and the sixth chapter. Just turn there and hold that ready. This is the third and final week of a very brief New Year's series called New Year, New You. And what we've been talking about is setting ourselves up for a great 2020 by developing a new attitude in some very specific areas of life. We began by talking about having a new attitude toward others. And then last week, we talked about having a new attitude toward stress. And this week, we're going to talk about having a new attitude toward you. And what we've done at the beginning of each message in the introduction is we spent a few minutes talking about the importance of our attitude, because your attitude determines the direction and the quality of your life. And since our attitudes begin in our minds, and I hope that's something that all of us understand, then each week as we've begun these messages, we've looked at this single verse from Romans chapter 12. It's Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where Paul writes and says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Everyone say transformed. Transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Last week, I told you that if you want to change your life in 2020, then what you really have to do more than anything else is you have to change your mind because that's what's going to result in a new attitude. And I'm not just saying that because it sounds good. I'm saying that because that is absolutely true. I read this past week that according to the Stanford Research Institute, only 125 percent of our success in life is determined by knowledge. The other 87.5 percent comes from attitude. In other words, they're saying that more than skill, more than knowledge, more than aptitude, more than any other thing, it is our attitude that, de that determines or dictates our success in life. I have for many, many years had a lot of respect for Charles Swindoll, who is a prolific writer and a great, great Bible teacher. This is a quote that I saw in one of his books called Day by Day, he writes and says, I believe the single most significant decision I can make on a day-to-day -day basis is my choice of attitude. The attitude I choose keeps me going or cripples my progress. When my attitudes are right, there's no barrier too high, no valley too deep, no dream too extreme. Your attitude is everything when it comes to the quality and the direction of your life. And since, again, our attitude begins in our minds, those words from Romans 12, 2 are so important to people of faith. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's the renewing of your mind, it's the renewing of your attitude that's going to help you be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so, what I want to do for a little while, for a little while this morning is I'm going to talk about how to develop a new attitude toward you. And that takes us to Luke chapter 6. And so, if you've got your Bibles open there this morning and you're able, don't feel bad if you're not able, but if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. If you're a guest with us this morning, thanks for being here. We're so glad you're here. Uh, I say from time to time that this might seem unusual to a guest, but uh, we make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service pretty much every weekend and because we have such respect for God's Word, we stand together when we read it. Our text is very brief today. It's just Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. You follow along as I read from my NIV Bible. Jesus is speaking. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that, struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Let's just talk about those words for a minute. The most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached is called the Sermon on the Mount, and probably many of you are familiar with that. If you're not, that's okay. It's found in Matthew's Gospel in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Next week, we're going to return to our verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Matthew that we began all the way back in November of 2016. And uh, so, a few years ago, when we were in Matthew, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount. This is how the Sermon on the Mount ends in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. See if these words don't sound familiar to you based on what we just read. Jesus, again, is speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That means speak in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And then Jesus goes on to tell this story. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a, man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came, and the stream rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, most of us are familiar more with those words from Matthew chapter 7 than we are in Luke chapter 6. Some people believe that Luke chapter 6 is really just an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found again in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that Luke 6 is just an abbreviated version. Some people believe that that's not the case, but that what we see in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we see in Luke chapter 6 are just two different versions of Jesus' go-to sermon. Do you know what that means? That wherever Jesus went, He had this same basic sermon because it encompassed the fundamental things that he wanted to teach, and so he preached it everywhere. You ever, you ever heard a preacher preach the same sermon? I had, there was a time, I was living in Oklahoma at the time, there was a time when uh, there was a guy in our brotherhood of churches who was a real popular preacher and speaker, and so he was always at conventions and conferences and special events. I think I went to hear him three times over the course of a couple of different years, and every time he preached the same sermon. Now, listen, don't get me wrong, it was a really good sermon the first time. <laughs> it was a really good sermon every time, but by the time it was the third time, I was saying it along with him. You know what I'm talking about? And some people think that's what this is, that Jesus, this, that these truths that we find in these two passages are his basic fundamental truths because he teaches all these countercultural things, and that's how he began to make waves among the community. But I don't think it matters whether you believe that Luke 6 is an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or whether it was Jesus' go-to sermon or what. I think what matters the most is that we focus on the message that Jesus delivers here. And when we look at it from Luke chapter 6, the key to the message is found in verse 47. Look at it on the screen. He says, I will show you what he is like who comes to me, now note this, and hears my words 
and puts them into practice. In Matthew 7, 24, he says it like this, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, listen to me close, because this is the central theme of what I'm trying to teach today. The most important thing that Jesus tells us with this story or this illustration, whatever you want to call it, whether you look at it from Matthew chapter 7 or you look at it from Luke chapter 6, is that it's our actions that make all the difference in our lives. In fact, let's just look back at the entire text in Luke chapter 6 because I'm somebody who I will always believe in the power of repetition when it comes to learning. It's a brief text. It begins in verse 46 with Jesus saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my word and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Actually, I will tell you that even though I'm more familiar with this story in Matthew, I like the way it's rendered here in Luke chapter 6 because in Matthew, it talks about a storm coming and the rains come down. And if you were like me and you grew up in church, you learned this little song about the rains came down and the floods came up, but the house on the rock stood firm. But in Luke chapter 6, he talks about a torrent. He talks about a flood. And that was something that Jesus' listeners in Israel would have been very familiar with because flash flooding in Israel is a really big thing. In fact, some of you here in this service, I'm sure, were with me just a couple of months ago when we traveled to the Holy Land. And one of the first places we visited when we were there was we went down to the Dead Sea area, which is literally geographically the lowest place on the planet. It's the lowest place on the face of the earth. And that's where we floated in the Dead Sea. That's where we were when we went to visit Masada. That's where we were when we went to the desert of En Gedi, which is where David hid when he was on the run from Saul, when Saul was trying to kill him. Now, on the bus that I was on that day, the tour guide said many times, we're making our way, for example, we're making our way to the desert of En Gedi, but we've got to be careful because we may not be able to go there because there was rain last night and there could be flash flooding in the area. And flash flooding in a desert area is a big deal. In fact, go home and get on YouTube and just, just type into YouTube something like flash flooding in Israel or flash flooding in the deserts of Israel and see what comes up. It's really torrential and it really is a torrent and it really is dangerous. Fast moving water is so dangerous. And that's the picture that Luke is painting here, this fast moving water that could destroy the foundation of a house, especially if there was no foundation. But when we think about this story, and I just read that passage again, we have to ask the question, what was the difference between these two men? What was the difference between the man whose house stood firm and the man whose house collapsed? Was it the circumstances? No, because they both faced the same storm. Was it the fact that one house was strong, one house had better bones than the other? No. There's nothing in the story to make us think that there was anything significantly different about the structures of the house. The difference was the foundation because one house was built on the rock while the other house had no foundation at all. It was the foundation. Now let's personalize it for a moment. And let me ask you this question. What makes up the foundation of your life? I mean, you think about your life, whoever you are. If I think about my life, I think about my life individually. I think about my life as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. And all the different roles that I have in life. What is it that makes up the foundation of your life? Is it what you believe? Is it what you value? 
Is it what you think? Your opinions? Some people might answer yes. But if we ask ourselves that question solely in the context of Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49, then we have to see that Jesus is teaching us that it's our actions, it's what we do, it's the things that we practice that become the foundation of our lives. If your foundation is built on nothing more than talk, if your foundation, the foundation of your life is built on nothing more than just things that you believe or good intentions, then I can guarantee you, you are not going to stand strong when the floods of life will come, and they will come. The only way to make sure that you can stand strong is by building your life on action, which means taking the words of Jesus, taking the Word of God and putting it into practice in your life. And so developing a new attitude toward you in this new year means moving from someone who believes that all you have to do is come to a place like this and hear what I have to say or what somebody like me has to say because I've got my Bible open. I'm not talking to you today about my opinions or my personal code of belief. I'm talking to you about the Word of God. You move from someone who thinks that all I have to do to be a Christian and live a good life is just to hear the Word of God, and you recognize that you need to hear it, and you need to put it into practice. Another way to say that, and probably the more accurate way to say it, is that you need to understand that a strong life, a strong foundation in your life is built on obedience to God's Word. We take God's Word, and we put it into practice in our lives, and then we become like that man who built his house on a foundation that was so solid that even a flash flood, a dangerous, fast-moving flash flood could not threaten its stability. Now, having said that, I'm going to spend just the next few minutes of my time by talking about three values or three benefits that we can understand and experience in our lives that comes from an attitude that understands how important it is to be active, to be obedient when it comes to the Word of God. If you're somebody like, who likes to take notes, write down next to number one, the first one. When we do that, when we take God's Word and we put it into practice, when we have this new attitude that says it's not just about hearing, but it's about acting, it's about doing, then the first thing that happens is that proves our faith. It proves our faith. Write down those words. Taking God's Word and putting it into practice proves our faith. It's not hearing God's Word that proves our faith. It's putting it into practice. Again, Luke 6, 47 and 48, I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my word and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verses 47 and 48. But if you got your Bibles open there still to Luke chapter 6, look at verse 46. What did he say right before that? He prefaced those words by saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The word that Jesus uses there for Lord in the original language of the New Testament, which is the Greek language, is the Greek word kurios. And literally translated, the word kurios means he to whom a person or thing belongs. It means the one who has control of the person. It literally means master. And we can't miss the significance of those words because they are not used casually. I'm going to put a couple of verses on the screen from Romans chapter 10. This is Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. This is Paul. And he says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Say it with me. Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified 
and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Here's what Paul is teaching us in those verses. No one, no one experiences salvation apart from coming to a place in their life where they acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is master, that Jesus now has control, complete control of my life. And yet, Jesus' question in Luke 6, 46 never goes away. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew's account of the same story, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Is there anyone here in the room or listening to me online who doesn't understand the meaning of these words? Who doesn't understand the warning, how strong a warning this is? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? This is a really big deal. The truth is American cultural Christianity, or in other words, what a lot of Christians decide is acceptable or is enough when it comes to their faith, can tell you that you can be a Christian and you can have the assurance of eternal life without really obeying Jesus, without really obeying God, but that's not what the Bible says. Not at all, not even close. Jesus calls us to obedience. And not just here in these two passages from Luke chapter 6 and Matthew 7, in other places as well. In fact, you find it all throughout the Gospels. For example, John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. But it's not just the words of Jesus that are found in the Gospels. We find this in other places in the New Testament as well. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, the apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, who traveled with Jesus, who heard Jesus speak like this over and over and over again, carried on the message by writing these words. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. Think about the strong language there. Is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And listen, friends, at the end of the day, this is not about God being insecure with regard to our love and our loyalty. This is about God wanting to bless your life. Because when you hear and obey the words of God, the words of Jesus, then blessing is the result. Blessing is what comes. I've got my Bible marked. You don't have to turn there, but I've got my Bible marked in Psalm 119 this morning, which is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. Just listen to how it begins. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their hearts. They do nothing wrong. They walk in His ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying Your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame. When I consider all Your commands, I will, be, I will praise You with an upright heart as I learn Your righteous laws. I will obey Your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. The psalm begins with the psalmist saying, blessed are those basically who obey. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, the original language was the language of Hebrew, and you look at the word blessed in the Old Testament language of Hebrew there, and it's the Hebrew word asher. And the thing about this word is it's very similar. It's almost identical to its New Testament counterpart. In the New Testament, the word blessed is the Greek word makarios, 
And both of them mean the same thing. They mean happy. Let me ask you a question. You want to live a happy life? It's more than just having a happy wife. I want to live a happy life. I don't want to be in a bad mood. I hate that. I hate being unhappy and I hate being down and discouraged and depressed and all those things all the time. Well, the Bible says the quickest way to live a happy life is by obeying the Word of God. That Psalm 119 goes on. I mean, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your Word? In verse 11, I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And it's not just the hearing of the Word. It's the putting it into practice that makes the difference because the Bible tells us over and over again that obedience brings blessing into our lives. God wants to bless your life, and His blessing comes when you obey Him. His blessing doesn't come just because you hear from Him through somebody like me. The blessing comes when you take what He has to say and you put it into practice in your life. And so here's the ultimate question. How can you, how can I, how can anyone say that we've surrendered our hearts to Christ as Lord and not obey Him and not do what He tells us to do? How can we do that? I told you the story once about uh, in my church that I was at before I came here, which is a much smaller church than Mount Pleasant, and I used to oftentimes share the gospel with children when they want to become a Christian. We have a great children's ministry staff who does that here, and I would sit down and talk to them face-to-face, and I would talk to them about everything they needed to know about Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and how we surrender our hearts to Him. I would talk to them about uh, being baptized. I would talk to them about making a profession of faith in Christ, and I would always, I would always use for them the same profession of faith that I use here whenever I'm, uh, I do that with someone here. I have them repeat after me. For example, if we're standing in the baptistry, I have them repeat after me, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I confess him as the Lord of my life. Remember what Paul said? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But when I did that with children, I always say it like this, because, I, because I, the word Lord was not a common word to them. I'd say, you repeat after me, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I confess him as the boss of my life. Who doesn't understand what it means to say someone's the boss of your life? And every time we would baptize children in that church, we would march all the children from the children's ministry that day into the service up on the stage right under the baptistry so that they could watch and see and hear firsthand what was happening. How can you say that Jesus is the Lord of your life, the boss of your life, and then not do what he says? How can any of us do that and think that we're going to have the blessing of God in our life? That's not an unreasonable question. There was a time when I had somebody working for me who all of a sudden decided that it wasn't necessary for them to show up to work. They just never showed up to work. And this wasn't, this was long before the days of working remotely and all the options that are available today. This was when you, you had an office and a desk and a phone and people that you saw and talked to every day and didn't show up for work. And I would say, you got to show up for work. You got to show up for work. And he wouldn't show up for work. And finally, I had a personal face-to-face meeting. I said, listen, you've got to show up to work. You've got to come to work. Tomorrow, you've got to come to work. And he said, I'm sorry, and gave me some reasons why and said, I'll, I'll be at work tomorrow. And the next day came, and he didn't show up for work. And he doesn't work for us anymore. That's how it works in the real world, isn't it? Now, aren't we glad that God doesn't bring the hammer down on us immediately when we say, I'm going to do this, and we don't? But the question remains, how can you say, how can you, me, or anyone say that Jesus is the Lord of our life with all the implications connected to that word 
and then not do what he says. It doesn't work that way. When we put his word into practice, that is the demonstration, that is the proof, that is the reality that our faith is more than just an empty profession. All right, right down next to number two. The second thing that, that this does for us is it provides a stable foundation. The first home builder represents a man who not only heard the word of Jesus, but put it into practice. He obeyed him. That means, to use the imagery of the illustration, he goes to the trouble of digging down deep into the soil until he hits the bedrock. Then he anchors his foundation to the bedrock so that his house is standing on a firm foundation. So when the storm came and the flash flood came against his house, it stood firm. That house represented his life. The house that you and I build, that represents our lives. Are we building our lives on the sure foundation of obedience to the words of Jesus, the words of God? Are we building them on the the sand or the nothingness of empty profession? You know what? I have a heart for people. I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't have a heart for people, if I didn't care about people. To be honest and transparent for a minute, one of the biggest struggles that I've faced the entire time, all 18 years that I've been the pastor here at this church, is how difficult it is for me and my schedule with all my responsibilities to spend time on an individual basis demonstrating pastoral care for people who are in need. And I know that there are so many people in need all the time. I just don't have the time to be involved. I think I told you one night that, uh, one, one weekend that, you know, oftentimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night. And when I wake up in the middle of the night, sometimes I can't go back to sleep. And I lay there and I feel like I've just got a long line of people standing next to my bed because I think of person after person after person who are sick, battling some kind of illness or disease in the hospital, suffering some kind of a loss or struggling in some emotional area of their life, and I pray for them person after person after person until I fall asleep. You just got to hope that you're in the front of the line when that happens. (laughs) At my house. But I care about people. But I'm going to tell you something. I can find myself feeling very impatient and sometimes angry with people who get angry and disappointed with God and want to walk away from their faith because they're going through some kind of trial or some kind of trouble in their life. I'm sorry if that sounds insensitive and callous because that's not my heart. I'm just being honest. People who, want to, who tell me they're thinking about walking away from their faith because they can't believe that God allowed some trouble or some trial to come into their life. Listen to me really close. We've talked about this before, but we need to talk about it again. The Bible never, everyone say never, never, ever tells us that our lives are going to be free from trial and trouble in this world. Never, never. We're reminded of that every single weekend when we watch that change for a dollar story. If you don't have somebody close to you where you see that and that's happening, happening in your life, we're reminded of that every single week. Jesus told the disciples in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, he says, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the word, the world. The word trouble that he uses there in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word thlipsis. It's an odd-sounding word, but it literally means oppressing or oppressing together. Sometimes it's translated oppression or affliction. But what really re- resonates with me is this idea of oppressing together. We all find ourselves at different times in life, in times of trial or trouble, and it feels like we're like being pressed in a vice, and it's unyielding and unrelenting, and it's so difficult We experience that kind of oppression and affliction. This is the reality of the world for all of us, at least on some level. And the Bible never tells us that that's not the case. We're going to face disappointments 
and setbacks and sickness in life. We're going to face the loss of loved ones that's heartbreaking, the loss of jobs. We're going to be let down by family members and friends. We're going to let, be let down by our pastor and our pastoral staff. And you can go on and on and on. And as we get older, we're going to face the loss of our health and our strength. And we're going to be confined at least on some level to the limitations of our body. And then on top of all that, there's the steady, relentless approach of death that's all, always there staring down all of us. And if that's not enough, you can add to that the reality of temptation in this world. I don't even have time to talk about temptation, but we have an enemy who wants to destroy our faith. Jesus said about Satan in John chapter 10 and verse 10, the very first part, the thief, that's who he's talking about, Satan. He says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And temptation is relentless. It's like the waves of the ocean. They roll in and they roll out. And they roll. Just because they roll out doesn't mean they're gone. It rolls in and out and in and out, and we live under that constantly. But here's what we need to understand. Listen to me really close. Every trial and every temptation that comes into our lives is ultimately a test. It's ultimately a test to see whether or not we are true disciples of Jesus or we're just fair-weather followers who were never really sincere in our profession of faith. In fact, listen to me close. Did you know that the word trial... And the word temptation in the New Testament both come from the same Greek word. They both come from the word pirasmos. And the reason why they come from the same word is because the basic meaning of the Greek word pirasmos is a test or a testing. It's, it has the fundamental meaning of a test. And so when trial and temptation come into our life, how we respond demonstrates the reality or lack thereof of our faith, our genuine faith. If our lives, if our lives of faith are built on a stable, strong foundation of obedience to God's Word, obedience to the teaching of Jesus, not just hearing those words but putting them into practice, then we're going to be able to stand strong. And I've seen this happen as a pastor over and over again. In every church that I've served, I've seen people who have gone through horrific, difficult times of trial, faced great temptations, and withstood the trial and the temptation in great demonstrations of strength that sometimes can't even be explained because the foundation of their life was so firm and so solid and so secure because they didn't just know what God had to say about life and living. They put it into practice. But the opposite of that is true as well. And I've seen people walk away from their faith because life didn't turn out the way they thought it would whether it was a result of their bad choices or they were victimized by living in this sinful fallen world, which is what happens to some of us sometimes. We can be completely innocent and yet be victims of the reality of living in a sinful and a fallen world. In fact, not long ago, I had an email exchange with somebody who basically told me that they were, they were thinking about walking away from their faith, and I'm not making this up. They were thinking about walking away from their faith because people were being mean to them. And there was an anger and a disappointment with God that he was allowing people to be mean to them. How do you make sense of that? The Bible never, ever says that we will not have trial and trouble in this world. And how we, how we respond to the trial and the trouble, and you can add the temptation, is the demonstration, it is the test of whether or not our profession of faith that Jesus is Lord is true or it's just empty. And I don't think anybody can miss the significance of that. Right down next to the third thing. 
or number three, the third thing, it protects our future. And I got to do this quickly. When you go back to Jesus' illustration in Luke 6, and you think about this man who built his house without a foundation, you have to ask, why in the world would anyone do something that was that, that dumb? And honestly, there could be several answers to that question. Let's just talk about one of them. One answer why somebody would do something as dumb as building a house without putting it on a, on a solid foundation is because they gave no thought to the future. They gave no thought to what would happen as a result. And so they just threw up the house as quickly and simply as possible because, listen to me, this is the key, because that was easy. Because that was easy. There's a spiritual parallel there. Disobedience is always easier than obedience. How many of you know that's true? Not sometimes easier. It's not sometimes it's easier to do the wrong thing than the right thing. All the time. Always, disobedience is easier than obedience because disobedience will get you where you want to go quicker than obedience. And so Jesus uses this illustration, and he basically says that while one man was out in the hot sun dripping with sweat as he dug the foundation of his house, the other was inside sipping some lemonade, enjoying the day because he wanted the immediate benefits of a house without taking the necessary steps to build it correctly. But in the end, you see how short-sighted that was when the flash flood came and his house was completely destroyed. Now, and Phil and Trish in the group can get ready to come out and lead us in our last song. Let me just, let me close like this. Let, let me just, I want you to listen to me close. That is so short-sighted because let me tell you what the forecast is for your life and mine. 100% chance of flooding. 100% chance of some flash flood coming into your life. We may not know when, we may not know the shape of what it's going to look like, but 100% chance of flooding. So since that's the case, what's going to happen to your house? What's going to happen to your life? What's going to happen to your marriage? What's going to happen to your family? What's going to happen to your children? What's going to happen to your career? What's going to happen to your friendships? What's going to happen to your discipleship, your following of Jesus? 100% chance of flooding. What's going to happen to your future? I'm convinced that the most important thing all of us can do to experience a new year, new you, is make the commitment to not just hear the words of Jesus, not just hear the Word of God, not even just know the Word of God, but put it into practice. And so we need to change our mind and change our attitude about thinking that just by showing up and hearing what God has to say is enough. Because what Jesus is teaching is it's not what we say we believe, it's not what we say we value that makes the difference in our lives, it's what we put into practice. And you can apply that to every single part of your life. Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for a chance to talk about these things today and drive these truths home in our hearts where we live. Help us to understand that It's our actions, it's what we do that builds the foundation of our lives. We can talk about what we know and we can talk about what we believe until we're blue in the face, but it's what we put into practice that builds the stable, firm foundation, not just for our life, but every single part of our life. And if we want to live blessed lives, 
stable lives, secure lives, then we need to take action. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.